morning, everybody. A couple things um, to mention. Just want to thank thank Joe um, for filling in for Jessica on uh, Him Sunday here. I Jessica's taking some time off. I think it's just just one Sunday. That's all we're going to give her. Um, second, I think uh, Tanner mentioned in the announcements the. Um, the new system out here with the nursery and so um, all of you parents who have kids in the nursery uh, I think it's it'll be fine um, kind of work your way through it and the one thing um, is primarily for security um, I know that there are going to be a lot of parents who we know you you've been here in our church for 10 years okay you still have to have your little barcode or you can't get your child. Now, I hate, that could be an incentive. It could be, um, but we need everybody to go through that. It honestly, we're not concerned um, about necessarily, you know, strangers taking people, but it's non-custodial parents, things like that. And our, our church insurance even gets into this area. So for us to have a good, secure system so that no one um, but the person who dropped the child off and gets a barcode can pick them back up. So if you'd be patient with that um, and adapt to it, um, we'd appreciate it. <clears throat> I want to talk to you this morning about something that I, I don't have a specific text to read. I am going to refer to the Bible, but um, um, not a specific text. <clears throat> but I felt this prompted to do um, this thought today. I think we all know that we live in literally, uh, uh, our society, in a, an ocean of lies. Falsehood is absolutely everywhere. And it is spoken with such a sense of certainty and authority and any other opinion is run out of the room. We need always, but more it seems now than ever, a certain source of authority. There are thousands of sources of authority. Now, we're not in a new day as far as having competing opinions and lies and falsehood. The scripture teaches us that that has always been the case. The devil is the chief deceiver. That's one of his names. He is, according to Jesus, the father of all lies. No truth is in him. We are then, we're in a world that is just absolutely filled with various mixtures of truth and error. It's confusing it's especially confusing in the spiritual realm. You've got 
I don't know how many different denominations telling you we know the way, ours is right, yours is wrong. What in the world do we do? Thinking about this, I don't remember, it's on TV or something, just a blurb, a reminder of um, whatever little prince it is, and I don't even know his name, um, Queen Elizabeth's grandson or great-grandson, um, at her jubilee, or no, her, her 70th um, year of reign, and when they were out on the balcony, I don't know if anybody saw it, this little kid, he's four, and there's jets flying over, there's bands playing, there's all, and he just, he, is, he has his mouth open screaming and his hands over his ears. I think that's the way a lot of us feel. Um, that's about the only thing you do is scream, put your hand over your ears. What do we do with what matters? God, eternity. How do we find and know and stay on the truth? Now, this is technically, um, this is in the scripture, what I want to talk to you about today, but it's really not a, a lined out in a particular reference. It's what is called, and I don't want you to get hung up on any names, but it's what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, okay? Now, everyone must memorize this and, and the spelling. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's named after John Wesley. It's not because he... It's like we speak of the history of the church. We use a Gregorian calendar, that's named after Pope Gregory, who rearranged the calendar, okay? Doesn't mean he came up with the idea of a calendar. He just gets named for a particular reading of the calendar. John Wesley did not come up with the quadrilateral, but it's named after him as a method of finding truth and defending truth that he popularized, okay? Quad just comes from four. Lateral comes from either, a, a, usually a square or a rectangle. It militarily, it can speak to a defensive posture that is put in place to defend ground. In this case, it's a defensive posture of the truth. Now, there are four sources, I think, we can say of authority, and then I'll turn around and contradict that in a second, okay? Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. Now, technically, to say these are sources of authority um, is not quite accurate. The source of, a tour of authority is Scripture. Tradition, reason, experience are, are methods by which we interpret and understand and defend the truth of Scripture. 
So reason is not equal to Scripture, or tradition is not equal to Scripture, experience is not equal or superior to Scripture. Scripture stands alone as our source of authority. There is no other source of authority. It is above and beyond any kind of human authority. It stands alone. It is the Word of God. It will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word abides forever. God never changes it. He fulfills it in some cases as he moves into what he has been saying is the future, the Christian dispensation. He told us he was moving into that. It would fulfill and replace the Mosaic dispensation, the Jewish system of sacrifices and ceremonial laws is fulfilled in Jesus, so those are done away. But God never contradicted it. He fulfills it, and now we move on to what that pointed to. The Old Testament points in every way it possibly can to Jesus. The Passover, for instance. The New Testament says Jesus is our Passover. He is our sacrifice. It's now by his blood, not the blood of sheep and bulls and goats and pigeons that we are, our sins are covered. It's now the blood of Jesus. There's no contradiction in that. There's a succession. The one completes its mission of pointing to Jesus, just like John the Baptist. John the Baptist pointed to one that will come after him, Jesus. And then John said, he must increase, I must decrease. And then we know he was beheaded by Herod for a short six months. He was a shining, burning light, Jesus said. But that light fulfilled its purpose, introducing Jesus. And then John the Baptist was taken away. Not contradicted. Fulfilled. So the scripture, though there are things in it now that apply to us that didn't then and vice versa in the Old Testament, the scripture is our enduring, infallible, inerrant, authoritative source of authority. There is no other. Now, there's a problem that we have, not with God. We are fallen. We are affected by sin. That means our judgment is not always clear. That means our understanding is sometimes darkened. There are a lot of ways in which we don't think straight. We're flawed. Therefore, to say, and don't think I'm a heretic, I'm as orthodox as you can possibly get, okay? There are people, there are denominations who, who will say, I can't remember all of them, but there are several that have the, I've seen it even on signs in front of their churches, no creed but the Bible. 
Now, everybody here, don't, don't go nuts on me. You might think, well, what world's wrong with that? Well, who gets to interpret it? And the people that say no creed but the Bible have their interpretation of what that creed, that Bible, means. And, in many cases, are in diametric disagreement with other groups who use the same Bible, maybe even the same version. So, do we have no foundation? No. Wesley, founder of the Methodist, was correct. That the Bible is the foundation of all truth. If there be one error, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood, it did not come from a God of truth. We know then, Scripture is accurate, but it needs to be interpreted. Let me give you an illustration. The Ethiopian treasurer who came to Jerusalem to worship, returning home, down heading towards Egypt, what's today Gaza. He's riding along and he's reading in the book of Isaiah about the suffering Savior, Isaiah 53. And the Spirit of the Lord picked up Philip the deacon who was in Samaria leading a highly successful revival tells us about it in the 8th chapter of Acts. And the Spirit of the Lord simply transported Philip from Samaria to the desert where this man's chariot is coming by. And he ran up to the chariot and overheard this treasurer of Ethiopia reading aloud from the book of Isaiah. Philip called to him, stopped the chariot, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? His answer was, there's no creed but the Bible. He didn't say that. His answer was, how can I understand it unless some man explain it to me? There comes in then the community of interpretation of Scripture. The Scripture is authoritative, but the first way in which we approach Scripture to discover its meaning is tradition. And tradition is hinted at when this Ethiopian treasure said, I can't understand it unless some man explains it to me. The Bible's been given to the church. That's a community. It's a worldwide community. It was given 2,000 years ago, the New Testament was. Old Testament, way, way, way before that. The scriptures belong to the church of God. 
And the scriptures then have been from the beginning interpreted. So if I come across a passage of scripture or some fundamental truth, and there every single fundamental truth in scripture has always been under attack, it's under attack today. You can take the standard major foundational doctrine, the Trinity, creation, man created in the image and likeness of God. There are four major, major themes of Scripture. God, man, sin, salvation. That's what the book is all about. Now, how do I know that? And how do I know how to interpret those four major themes? Tradition, meaning, what has the church, both Jewish and then Christian, always held to in general? There's always going to be outliers. But what has the church generally held to as far as the basic truths of Judeo-Christianity? What's the majority, what has generation after generation after generation taught similarly? Tradition matters. Now, I think it's not only a symptom of lazy minds and whatever, but I, I think it's satanic that especially in West, Western civilization, we denigrate history. We denigrate history in the church. That we, maybe not on purpose. In many cases, I'm sure it's not on purpose. But we don't pay any attention to church history. I can't tell you the number of times I have said, even maybe here, and all of you are brilliant and saints, but I'll say something about as Luther said, and people literally will say, uh, you mean Martin Luther King? No. <laughs> I'm not saying anything evil there, but Martin Luther King is a pipsqueak compared to Luther, Martin Luther. Changed history, God did, through him in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, but nobody, Martin Luther King, is pathetic. But we have intentionally decided that those things aren't important. But they are. So when I look at a scripture, and it's difficult maybe to understand, there's two or three interpretations to it, we're not quite sure what does that mean, or how do we... How do we know, and, and I, I prayed that God would make sure that I would, am short today um, and don't go over. Anybody ever heard, let me just throw this out. Anybody ever heard the illustration of the Trinity? A lot of people try to, to illustrate the Trinity. Well, the Trinity is just like water. It's liquid, it's a solid in ice, and it's a vapor. The Trinity. Anybody heard of the egg? It's a shell. It's the white. It's the yolk. The Trinity. 
Another one I heard not too long ago, an apple. I never could quite get that, but there's something about the skin and the apple itself and the seeds. <gasps> the Trinity. None of those, there is no illustration for the Trinity, period. If anybody comes up with one, it's false. It's false. The Trinity is three in one at all times. There's one God, eternally existent in three persons. They are of those persons, yet one God, co-eternal, co-essential, co-equal. You can't illustrate that. A term is used, it's supra-reasonable, not unreasonable. Not super reasonable, supra. It's above our capacity to completely grasp it. Well, how do we know that? Scripture, calling all three persons at once and at different times, God. Attributing creation, omniscience, sovereignty, worship due to all three persons. Yet, the Lord our God is one God. We get that interpretation from at least three to four hundred years of wrangling, of great church councils, of exiling people that disagreed, in some cases cutting the tongues out of people that preached a different, now that's not Christian, burning them at the stake. All of that ferment to come up with three basic creeds, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, so forth. Second, the Nicene Creed, which clarified a little bit of, of obscurity on the personhood and the Godhead of the Holy Spirit. And then there's what's called the Athanasian Creed. Those three basic creeds hammered out in centuries in the early church spell out basic Orthodox Christian beliefs. So, if someone comes up with some notion that is off, we do two things. One, we go to Scripture. Not that we go to tradition, which trumps Scripture. We go to Scripture. But for a proper interpretation of Scripture, we can say, here's the Scriptures, and here's how 2,000 years worth of believers and saints and scholars interpreted that. What's an assumption also that we have in that? The continual, moment by moment, daily, century to century, millennia to millennia, superintendence of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit went to all the trouble over 1,500 years at least of inspiring all of the books old and new in the Bible, I think it's safe to say that the Holy Spirit will continue to superintend the translation of it, the interpretation of it, the explanation of it, 
if he went to that trouble, he will still superintend it. So tradition is a huge help. It's an aid in interpreting scripture, even down to not only what we believe, but how we act, even how we conduct church services, is tradition. There is a second thing, a second aid, and there is a hierarchy here in these three aids that help us with Scripture. Tradition, then reason. God gave us a brain, the majority of us. And listen, God created us to think just like he thinks. Otherwise, we couldn't communicate with God. All through the scriptures, here's just one. Come now, God said in Isaiah, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. And Isaiah is filled with illustrations of the greatness of God and logical arguments of how God is great and also logical arguments in Isaiah's day, idols were the big competitor, logical arguments about the dumbness of idols. If you read through the 40s chapters in Isaiah, over and over, Isaiah keeps making the case. He said, you go into the woods and you chop down a tree. So you took authority over that. And you chop down the tree and you drag the thing home. And he said, you cut it in half and you split it and you start a fire with it, cook your food over it, warm it, says your hands over it. And the other half, he said, you carve it into a figure of an idol and you fall down on your face and your knees in front of it begging it to take care of you. So that's crazy. <laughs> but that's reason. God reasons with us and made us so that we think like he thinks. Therefore we can communicate. We're to use reason. Here's one major, major, major reason. Or, or impact of reason. God never, ever, ever contradicts himself. Ever. Basic logic. Still, I dusted off my logic book yesterday that from college days. One of the fundamental things of debate and of arguing back and forth your opponent is dead in the water, the debate is over, and they get an F if you can point out they contradicted themselves. That is the death blow to a, an argument, but you contradicted yourself. So, when I hear a doctrine, let's say, that supposedly, that's what the Bible says, or I interpret this verse, let me just throw one out. You'll have to, you have to love me to get to heaven. Okay? Here's one very, very, very common. And hang on a minute, and I'll try not to take too long. 
we Christians, all of us, but Christians, we sin in word, thought, and deed every single day. We sin in word, thought, and deed every day. We sin in word, thought, and deed every day. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. St. John said, I'm writing these things unto you, little children, that's Christians, that you do not commit a sin. That's the Greek. One. John said, he that's born of God does not keep on sinning. How many times did Jesus say to people who, whom he healed, go and sin no more? And the poor soul, I've told you before, 38 years, couldn't walk. Jesus healed him. He said, go and sin no more, or a worse thing will happen to you. Now, anybody here want to try to stand up and reconcile? We sin and word, thought, and deed every single day as Christians. Somehow it's all covered. And what Jesus said, what John said, what Hebrews says, if we keep on sinning, he says we have no further sacrifice for sin. Or what do we do with the notion, go read Matthew 18, the parable of the king to whom someone owed 10,000 talents of silver, astronomical price, begged him, forgive me, can't pay it said, I'll forgive you. He went right out, of course, you know the story, strangled his fellow servant who owed him a hundred pennies. You pay me back. The guy falls to his knees, begs him in the same words that the first servant used. Forgive me, have patience with me, I'll pay you. And he said, no, throwing you in debtor's prison. The other servants report it to the king. The king brings that first servant back in. And here's what he said to him. He said, you wicked servant. Now I want you to listen to this. These are the words of Jesus. I forgave you all that debt. But you wouldn't forgive your fellow servant a, a smaller debt. Therefore he said, to all the rest of the servants. Deliver him, this first servant, deliver him to the tormentors until he pays back all of his debt. Now, I, I'm going to drive this home as clearly as I can. God himself is represented there. He's the king. He said, I forgave you. Then he said, I forgave that debt. Then he says, you torment him till he pays it all back. He reinstated the debt. Once the debt's forgiven, it's always forgiven. Not according to Jesus. Then, the clincher is the final sentence. So will your Father in heaven do to every one of you who does not from the heart forgive his or her brother. Now you tell me if that's contradictory. 
That's the wildest contradiction I've ever heard of. And I, I use that illustration because it's so common. That's all we ever hear. The debt's forgiven forever. No, it's not. You re-engage in sin, and he'll reinstate the debt. God doesn't contradict himself. That's, and I know we could probably, I don't know about here, but if I said this to all the churches in Gillette, we'd probably have some kind of rock-throwing deal out in the parking lot. But you can't get around the fact it's contradictory of God's authoritative word and of reason. It's not reasonable. It's contradictory. It makes no sense. Third, have to hurry. Third aid to reason and tradition helping me to understand scripture and find truth and stick to truth is experience. A truth, this might sound, I didn't say it, it comes out of tradition, but I'll quote it. Religious truth that is not experienceable is no, no, no better than devil's faith. Let me explain it. James, you remember, said, you believe in God? Because how many people say that? Well, I believe in God. I don't pay attention to what he says, but I believe in him. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I tell you to do? James said, you believe in God? And he's it, it's really sarcasm. He says, you believe in God? He said this. Big deal. <laughs> Big deal. He said, the devils believe and shake. <laughs> they tremble. But they're devils still. So I can have a certain measure of faith and still not even be a believer. Not go to heaven. Devil's level <laughs> of faith. Experience, though, is a corroborating and confirming. For instance, I guess we could all, everyone here who's had a clear conversion experience, when you know that your heart was heavy and you felt shame and guilt and the wrath of God upon you and you knew you were wrong and you poured your heart out to Jesus, whether it was short or long prayer, whether you shed a lot of tears or few or none, but you got honest with God and you trusted him that he would forgive you and he did and your heart was filled with peace. That's, you just confirmed all the teaching and preaching in scripture about being born again, being saved, being converted. You confirmed it. That was like kind of final capstone I know it's true. The woman at the well said, Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. She ran into the town and told everybody in town that she found the Messiah. And they all, since they boiled out of the city and went out to the well, and then they said this, after seeing him and hearing him themselves, he said, they said, now... 
we know that what you said is true. We know it by experience. That's like bending the nail over on the other side of the board. It's, it confirms it. I have one minute. But I've got to say this. The least, the least reliable aid we have, if we're not careful, is emotion. Emotion is not trustworthy. Now, let me try to sum everything up and say this. You cannot elevate emotion, reason, or even tradition, cherry-picking it above Scripture. It, those aids help us understand, implement, and follow Scripture. Never does emotion trump Scripture. I just read the, not very long ago. Well, let me put it, let me widen it out. There's a group called, or there's a movement today called ARM, A-R-M. A couple of different words can be used. Apostolic Restoration Movement. They teach that all of the powers of the apostles, including receiving new scripture, are restored in the, these latter days. If you go to the Bethel Church, which is out in Redding, California, they regularly, I am not making this up, they regularly have um, feathers that drift down from the heat ducts, I guess, that are, that, that are feathers from angels in heaven. Now, I'm not making it up. Go look it up. Now, that is just barking mad. Okay? That is a lunatic. That's emotion trumping scripture. Because God said there isn't going to be any more scripture. Very last phrases in Revelation. You add to this, you add to this book of prophecy, he said, I'll add every single plague that's written in it to you. And he said, if you take away from what's written in this book, I'll take away your access to the tree of life in heaven and your part in the new Jerusalem. There is no new scripture. Somebody is just overeating an anchovy pizza the night before and had a nightmare or something. It's insane. It doesn't deserve an ounce of respect because it's crazy. Emotion can confirm truth, but it can go unbridled and lead us astray. We have to have then solid foundation of the scripture aided in our interpretation and defense of it by thousands of years of saints that have gone by but have written by using our brains and by confirming it with our experience. We can know the truth and Jesus said he'll set you free. Let's bow our heads and we're going to conclude with um, we'll sing it fast <clears throat> a great, great hymn How Firm a Foundation Father in heaven we thank you for 
the word of God, which teaches us the truth. We thank you, Lord, for the presiding, superintending Holy Spirit who helps us know the truth and guides us. You promised that he would be sent to lead us into all truth. So, Lord, help us be people of the book, listening to the Holy Spirit, and letting you, through your word, guide us safely to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.